0: Today, uh, we begin a third week in a series of messages that we started, which is the building a foundation for us as a church, because we're asking a question, what's next? Center Point will turn 15 years old this fall. And so as we look towards that 15-year celebration of our birthday... We're also asking God, God, what's next? What's next for the next two or three years? What areas of ministry are you going to lead Centerpoint into? Where can we take the influence of the gospel and carry it into our communities? And so in order to do that, i wanted to lay this foundation by us looking at the life of Jesus. How do we understand Jesus? How did Jesus do ministry so that as we spend the next several months talking, we have this foundation and go back and go, okay, remember this is what Jesus did, so how are we as a church doing it? How do we compare? And so we're asking that, that question, and today we begin with this third week. Now, an important part of this process is an event called Dreams Unlimited. It's in your bulletin. This is for the entire church, and I hope you'll block out on your calendar now. I hope you plan to come. If a growth group meets on a night, we're asking your growth group to meet over here that night. We're going to have a food event, so it's going to be a, a good time just to socialize and fellowship, get to know each other, and then we're going to spend some time just dreaming and thinking together, what can we do as a church? How can we have a greater impact in our community? So this is an opportunity for everybody in this church to speak into the future of Centerpoint. And so what a great opportunity for you. I want to ask you to participate in that. You need to sign up because we're going to make sure your kids are cared for and make sure we have enough food prepared. And so please sign up online and register your family for that event. Totally a free event. It's going to be fun as we dream and look forward together. For us to do this, as we look at Jesus, we want to know his passions. We want to know Jesus' purposes. We want to know his priorities. How did he, how did he uh, put pri- prioritize the importance of ministry? What was he passionate about? What was the purposes that he pursued? So week one, we looked at the kingdom of God and how did Jesus view the kingdom of God? This past week, we discovered that Jesus was the greatest evangelist. And how did Jesus view carrying his own message, the message of hope and the message of redemption and the message of salvation? How did he view taking that into this world? This week, we're going to uncover the principles we learned from Jesus as a disciple maker. What does it mean to be a disciple maker? What does that look like? In Matthew 28, Jesus gave his disciples the purpose. He gave them the mission, and that then is carried on to us to this day, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you say, Jesus is my Savior, and you receive the free gift of salvation, then you accept this mission as your mission. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 28 says that Jesus came to them, to them as the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. Right there are the marching orders for the church. That's the marching orders for Christians. Here's what we are supposed to be about. This is known as the Great Commission. Not the great suggestion, not just the great idea, the great commission. It's a mandate of how we are to succeed as Christ followers. And every Christ follower, someone who has accepted Jesus, must have a laser-like focus when it comes to this. And we as a church body must get more and more focused. How are we going to do this? It's so easy to get distracted by things that are lesser of importance. So easy to get sidetracked as a church. And so I want you to be thinking about two questions as we work through this morning's message. One is, are you a growing disciple? Are you somebody who says, okay, I understand I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I understand if that's the case, then I'm a disciple of His, and so I should be growing in that relationship. And number two, are you a disciple-maker? Which does that mean that means have you taken the time to go, okay, I become a disciple, which means I should help other people to become a disciple. And so that's a disciple maker, somebody who helps out somebody else to walk in Jesus. So let me define a few terms in here that I think are so key and so important. First of all, the term a disciple. I mean, at the core, that term means a person who is a pupil or a follower of the doctrines of another. Somebody who who has studied or someone who has followed in the footsteps of somebody else. For instance, some people would say, oh, I'm a disciple of John Calipari because I believe in his teachings about basketball. And you say, we laugh about that, but the truth is there's other coaches that are out there coaching who have been discipled by him and the methods of coaching or that other coach from puke school um, A lot of them are out there, and they're coaching too. They're disciples of that coach. They've learned their skills from that coach, and now they're implementing that on the basketball court. Or some people may say, I'm a disciple of Leonardo da Vinci, an artist. And they go, I've studied him. I've looked at all his paintings. I've read about him. I learned, how did he do his art? And so I'm going to follow in his footsteps. Some people, preachers say, I'm a disciple of Billy Graham." I've read about Billy Graham, I've studied Billy Graham, I look at his sermons, I want to repeat what Billy Graham done. So when you, when you put yourself underneath the leadership or the guidance or the, the teachings of another person, you become a disciple of that person. And what this scripture is talking about, that we are a disciple of Jesus Christ that we are followers of Jesus, that we want to know His doctrines. We want to know His way of living. And this is someone who has come to believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is only one right way to go. And you walk in a right relationship with God. And so you look at Jesus and say, I want to study the life of Jesus. I want to do what Jesus did. That's someone who says, I want to walk as a disciple of Jesus. A disciple makes disciples. So we learn how to do that, and then we help others. Now there's another key word in here, baptizing. Baptizing. He tells the disciples, you go into all the world, you baptize people, you make disciples. Now the practice, the baptizing is basically the practice of immersing or dunking someone in water when they decide they want to be a disciple of Jesus. And so that's hence why we have a baptistry here, that if you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, we baptize you as a modelled in the New Testament church. This is when a believer makes that public declaration that I want to live a new life in Christ. And then we see what the scriptures taught. And we say, Well, I want to follow in those footsteps as we are plunged beneath the water in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then we identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and say, I'm dying to my old self, and I want to rise anew as I walk in Christ, as Paul taught in Romans chapter six. And there's a third key word there called teaching. This is a disciple's lifelong commitment of learning to live out the teachings of Jesus. That it's not just a a decision I make one day and then I let it all go. It's something I strive to continue to do. I I sit underneath the teaching of Jesus. I try to continually learn, which means I never get to the point to say, I've arrived, I've got it all figured out. That we realize I'm in a place of continually being taught, continually being guided, continually being uh, directed to how to do that. And then when I learn how to do that, I'm also in the role of teaching others that I help others then grow in Christ as well. So once we become a disciple, we commit to being learners, and we commit to helping other people be learners. Now, there's one other phrase I want to address. It's not in your outline. So maybe just make a little note on the side, because it kind of came after the outline was printed. I want to talk about the difference between making disciples and the word discipleship. How many people in here have heard the word discipleship? Raise your hand. Lots have heard that word. A very normal Church word, but there's a major difference between making disciples because that's what we do. But some would say you're not even a disciple until you've made a disciple, until you help someone else come walk in Jesus. But discipleship typically refers to Bible study or Bible study classes. Now, I want to decipher between this just for terminology because it helps us understand as a church when we're discussing things and we're sharing about what's the difference between a disciple or making disciples and discipleship. See, the word was first used. Extensively in the 1850s, so the word discipleship never even came into play until 1850s by a man named Charles Adams, who broke the phrase into two things. He said making disciples is one part, and the other is evangelism, bringing people to Christ. He said, "Well, that's evangelism." He said, but "Then making disciples, discipleship, as we lab- labeled it as, is growing people into Christ." And so he separated these two terminologies. And then what happened was there was articles that were written about it, and there was there's classes and, and conferences about it. Well, we have evangelism class. We have, we have discipleship classes. We have how do we grow people and then how do we reach people? And there's actually become kind of an argument and divide through the church through the years like, no, this is more important or no, that's more important. And I want to tell you, church, they're all important. And so some preachers have kind of, through the years and some writers have come and said, listen, you can't say evangelism is more important or discipleship is more important. They're both highly important. It's kind of like a plane flying in the air. You have two wings on that plane. You don't take one out or as you know, there's going to be problems. That plane's not going to continue to go. And same in a church. We can't take one out or we can't take and say one's more important than the other. If I look out the window and I'm 35,000 feet in the air, I'm hoping that both of the plane wings are out there. Are you not too? And so we as a church, we have to look out the window, so to speak, and go, are we doing both? See, I, I like the term make disciples or disciple makers because it captures both evangelism and discipleship. The term disciple maker includes helping people come to know Jesus, to accept Jesus as Savior. But then we're not going to stop there. We're going to help them grow in Jesus. We're going to teach them. We're going to help them become learners. And so when we say disciple maker, we're talking about the process of taking someone who does not know Christ to come to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and then help other people go in Christ. And so it's a whole process that we want to make disciples. So around here, you may hear me say, if we're in a class or we're in a discussion, you say, discipleship, I say, all ships sink All ships eventually can sink. So we want to be disciple makers. It's vital that we recognize our mandate that's given to us to be those who go out and make disciples. That's why we're here. And as we consider how to accomplish this great commission, this ministry that God has given us, it's helpful for us to then look at Jesus' life and see some key distinctives. What were the key things that made Jesus a great disciple maker? And so I want us to today dial in on four attributes of Jesus about how he became a disciple maker, what he did. First of all, he had a deep commitment to relational ministry. We read through the four Gospels and and consider how Jesus spent his time and where he kept his focus. It's not hard to see that Jesus put people first. For example, John 3.22 tells us, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside after they've been preaching, after they've been teaching, where'd they go? They went off kind of to a spot by themselves where he spent some time with them and did some baptizing. So he went off in the country. He spent time, what are they doing? Developing a relationship. They spent time hanging out. They spent time talking. They spent time sharing life together, talking about the day that they went through and things they experienced. And then later on in John 15, verse 15, we saw Jesus' relationship with his disciples has been deepening over time because he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Let me ask you a question. Would you dare call somebody a friend if you're not in a relationship with them? We wouldn't do that, would we? We call people friends, those who are in relationship with. And sometimes you spend some time with people, and you say, well, they're kind of an acquaintance, or they're a work associate, but they got to cross a certain line before you say, hey, that person's my friend. That's, that person is someone who I care about that much. And how does that happen? It happens as we spend time together, as we share joys about life together, as maybe we cry about struggles going through life, as we talk about stresses, we just share what's going on in, in life, or as we talk about sports and, and all the various things that goes on with that, we start to develop a friendship. And that's what happened with Jesus, spent time with his disciples. And he said, you're not my servant, you're my friend. We're in relationship together. See, Jesus spent time with people. He spent time with his disciples but he also spent time with large crowds. He spent time with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He spent time with Pharisees and the sick and and all kinds of other people. His disciple-making ministry occurred throughout his daily life, not just in the synagogue on Saturdays. He he didn't lock himself up in some lofty tower or or get himself so busy that he couldn't, uh, in his carpentry shop, that he couldn't go out and spend time with people. And so as we pursue our mission of making disciples, we need to make time for people. Now, that challenges our American culture because we're used to what? Working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. We're used to getting up in the morning and we're hitting the ground running, doing our job go to bed after we ran our kids everywhere and we're flat out exhausted. We're, we're used to now the norm of I pull up to my, to my house and my garage door open, I go in, the garage door closes behind me, I don't see my neighbors, I don't know their names. We're used to fences that are six feet up or, or taller that divide us and so we don't know our neighbors. We're used to saying, well, I don't really know who they are. I'm not sure if I could really invite them over because they're gonna think I'm weird if I invite them over for some relationship or have a hot dog or share a Coke together. And it's just not the norm anymore. We're used to Sunday morning, we sit right here in rows, we hear a sermon preached, and we say, well, let's go home. You know what church used to do years ago? Hey, I got a roast on, why don't you come over, and you come over? Hey, we got some meatloaf in the oven, I got room for you. Or, hey, let's go out to eat together, relationship. And the church has got to be about relationship. We got to be purposeful about that. That takes time, but that's what Jesus did. If we're going to make disciples the way Jesus did, then we've got to make time for one another. Got to make time for one another to invest in each other. Now, another key, key distinctive of Jesus' re- disciple-making ministry is a, a life of prayerful dependence. He knew he couldn't do this by himself. In Luke 5, he says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed on their sickness of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It didn't say Jesus did this just once a year or every other year. Often. Now, I wish, this is one of those terms, I wish the Bible defined that. What what do you mean by often? Is it three times a week, five times a week? Is that every day of the week? We know that he got up very early in the morning and he got away to pray. Why would Jesus get away to pray? To talk to God as Father? God, I'm up today. What's going to happen today? God, I need your help. I need your direction. See, after all, you, you would stop and you would think, hold on a minute. That, that may be easier because Jesus is God and he was fully God, but we also need to keep in mind that he's fully human. See, when Jesus came down out of heaven, when God sends Jesus, he, he puts aside all of his God abilities and he becomes fully human. Philippians 2 says, reminds us that when Jesus came in the flesh, says being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So he set that aside and said, yeah, even though I'm part of the Godhead, I'm part of the Trinity, I've got to walk in this earth as a man, as a full human. And he says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So he needed to pray just like you and I need to pray. He needed to get his margin orders. All right, God, this is going on. God, this is stressing me. God, how do I handle this situation? God, what do you want me to say here? God, how do I do this? And he's talking to his dad. And so we see that Jesus modeled this dependence upon the Heavenly Father. Jesus' earthly ministry was a model for us of prayerful dependence. So when we get up and we start our day, God, I'm going into this day. God, I'm going to go see my coworkers. God, I'm going to interact with the grocery store. God, I'm going to be on the ball field today with my kids. God, I want to walk in prayerful dependence on you. God, who needs a word of encouragement? God, who needs to know Jesus Christ? That we start asking those kinds of questions because we're fully human just as he's fully human. And Jesus demonstrates, here's how you live a godly life. Here's how you live a disciple-making life. Professor Bruce Ware says it this way. He says, so many people minimize or demean the obedience of Christ by saying, of course he obeyed. He was God and had God's nature in him. He had no choice. Scripture does not let us draw this conclusion. It presents Christ as a man who faced every temptation and succeeded, not because he relied on his divine nature, but because he relied upon the Word of God, prayer, and the Spirit. Church, we need to do the same thing. If we're going to walk as Jesus walked, if we're going to disciple as Jesus' disciple, we need to walk in a Spirit. We need to walk in the word. We need to walk as people of prayer. And as we do that, we learn, how can I be a better mom? How can I be a better dad? How can I disciple my children? How can I disciple my friend? How, what do I speak? What do I say? What do I do? But what do we do so many times? We walk in our flesh. We walk in our power. We need to see what Jesus did and do the same thing. Jesus lived a life of prayerful dependence, and so should we. Look at John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not apart from me, you can do some ministry. Apart from me, you'll have some effect. Not apart from me, you'll still have a great marriage. Apart from me, you will do nothing. That's what Jesus was modeling for us. You've got to stay connected to the vine. God. Jesus knew that. i got to stay connected to my Father. How do you do that? He got off in quiet places where he prayed. So as we pursue our mission to make disciples, we also need to practice a life of prayerful dependence. Another key distinctive that Jesus' disciple-making ministry is that he had a profound love for sinners. Jesus was ridiculed for this. I mean, he was ostracized and persecuted because he had this strange behavior that he would go around this sinful, awful, dirty people, all the scumbags of the earth. For someone who claimed to be so holy, he spent an awful lot of time around what was known in the culture as dirty, awful sinners. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this about his allegations. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved by her right deeds. See, Jesus didn't seem to mind too much that people were saying these things about him. He's like, I don't care what you're saying. I'm focusing on my mission. He knew his focus was in the right place on helping sinners to become disciples. Why did he, could he do that? Because of his prayerful life. Because he is connected to the Father, because he's connected to the vine. And so he knows, okay, I'm praying, God, where do you want me to go? You go to that tax collector's house. God, what do you want me to, where do you want me to go? You go see that prostitute. God, where do you want me to go? You to, go talk to that woman at the well. God, what do you want me to do? You go heal that blind person. God, what do you want me to do? You go touch the leper. When everyone else is saying, you don't do that, he's like, I'm listening to my Father. Even though people are going to think I'm weird, Jesus' reputation for hanging out with sinners only increased, though, when he chose a disciple named Levi. Luke chapter 5 says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet at Jesus. For Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, the great commandment calls us to love God and love people. It doesn't say "Love people who are like you." It doesn't say "Love people who, are, who have life altogether. It says, "Love people." Jesus' love for people. It was what fueled His passion to make sinners into disciples. Levi's name even changes later, becomes Matthew. Jesus wasn't passionate about building a mega church or making a bunch of money or anything else. He was passionate about taking people who have one step towards hell and bring both steps towards heaven. That's what he was passionate about. He wanted to see people who were lost and on a direction towards hell to change their direction and go right towards heaven. He was passionate about making disciples. Are we passionate about that? When's the last time you cried? You wept over someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. When's the last time our hearts have broken? Some time ago, this was given to me, I think uh, something I was reading, it was a suggestion and it's something I've been trying to practice and trying to practice it more here as of late. Every time you stop at a red light to start praying, God, open my eyes to people who need Jesus. God, show me people around me who need to know the love of Christ. And you start thinking that way, it's amazing. Every time you hit a red light, you start praying that prayer, you'll be amazed how your prayers will start changing. You'll be amazed how your relationships start changing. You'll be amazed how you start thinking about people differently. Every time you hit a red light, Lord, help me to love people the way you love people. Help me to see people the way you see people. Lord, help my eyes to be your eyes. Every time you hit a red light, you know how many times you stop at a red light in a day? A bunch. And you can start making that a prayer. Every time you stop at a red light, Lord, I want to pray. I'm just going to start praying that I start having your kind of love. Another key distinctive of Jesus' disciple-making ministry is he had a comprehensive disciple-making approach. He didn't just kind of throw things up in the air and say, oh, let's just allow it to happen. He had a plan. One way it could be summarized is to win, to build, equip, and to multiply. Multiply. Jesus didn't spend all of his time on evangelistic crusades, although he had some. He spent time feeding the hungry and helping the hurting. He took time to go in the synagogue on Saturdays and to teach the Bible. He invested time sitting with a smaller group of 12 men and doing deeper leadership training and teaching them some deeper meanings of the truth. He did all of these. And so as we pursue our mission to make disciples, We need to follow a comprehensive approach and look at the life of Jesus. Dan Spader wrote a book called Four Chair Discipling. I've been sharing it with several people over the last, say, two to three years as we've been studying this and trying to get this idea and start thinking about how do we do this in our church. In this book, he lays out how Jesus made disciples. Many of this church have read that and it's starting to shape the conversation that we're having around here going, ah, we see how Jesus did it. How can we get better about that? Dan lays out four steps. He calls them four chairs. I personally like the, the terminology of four steps. Step one is that we win the lost. See, the first step in making a disciple is telling someone about the good news of Jesus. That we open our mouth and say, Do you know Jesus? We talked about that last week. Not, Do, do you go to church? Where do you go to church? Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? totally different question. That's where the journey begins as we make disciples. We must be in a relationship with people who don't walk with Jesus. You know, it's really ironic as Jesus went and met the tax collectors and he told him, he said, now you follow me. And he threw a party and he invited all his friends. Who do you think his friends were? A bunch of lost sinners. See, the longer we're in the church, the less people we know that are not Christians. And so we got to be even more purposeful to get around people who don't know Christ. And be in relationship with people so we can say, hey, can I introduce you to Jesus? But that's what Jesus did. Step two was he build up believers. The second step in disciple making is that once you become a believer, then you have to invest some time in that person to build them up. Day by day, we're built up in our faith as we worship God, as we receive instruction from his word, as we enjoy fellowship with other believers. And this is something that we do together. That's why we have growth groups. That's why they're so important to participate in a growth group. Now, there's a large percentage of people in this church that participate in a growth group. I would encourage you, if you're not, to say, I need to get in one of those groups. Because as you come together and you study the Word of God together, there's encouragement in that. There's learning from one another. And then when you walk through challenges of life, you walk through joys of life, you celebrate and you do those things together. Step three was equip the workers. See, as we grow in our Christian maturity, we become equipped to do God's work. We should never want to just say, I want to just sit and receive. This is not just referring to pastors and missionaries. When we become a disciple, when we we give our life to Jesus, we're getting built up, it refers to every single Christ follower that we find our place to serve. And this is so important in the body of Christ that every single part is important. We should be hungry to serve. It should be something that we look forward to. It shouldn't be something that we have to convince somebody or twist somebody's arm. Matter of fact, the the lines of people wanting to serve should be so long that we should be able to be turning people away and going, I'm sorry, I don't have any more room. But you know, that's not the case in the church. It's not the case in this church. It's not the case in the church in America. But see, if we really have the heart of Christ, then I want to serve and I want to be used and I want to be part of God's great mission, God's great work. But here's what happens in America today, there's been a major trend that has changed over in the last 10 to 15 years. People who come and say, man, I'll serve pastor. I'm so glad to be able to help out in the children's ministry. I am so excited to be able to help on that first touch team. I'm glad to change diapers. Lord, I mean, I'm glad to do that just once a month, though. That's what our culture has become in America. Well, why can't you do more than once a month? Oh, pastor, we're so busy. Man, we, we take off out of town on this weekend and go see family and friends. Oh, my kid's playing this sport. We're going on this week and this week. So, Pastor, I give one, I'll, give you, I'll give you one Sunday a month to, to serve. That's what happens today in today's culture. We, we start doing that. And When I grew up, Bible school teachers taught every single Sunday. Carol Larson was my Bible school teacher I don't, for years for years upon years, I went to Sunday school class every week. There's Carol Larson. Unless she was deathly ill or she went on vacation, which was not very often. Nancy Shartz was another one. Nancy and Bob Shartz. Every single Sunday, you know who her youth group leaders were? Right there, Nancy and Bob Sharts Every single Sunday night, they were my whirlybird leaders, my jet cadet leaders, as we called them back then. And they just poured their life into us kids. You know who stays in touch with me today? Those people. They're still checking up. Where are you at today? Back in those days, landscaping team, man, you never had to talk to the landscaping team. You'd walk in, you, the bushes were always trimmed, the weeds were always done, because they, they didn't just do it when they were asked. They just said, this is our church building, we're going to take care of it. And this is what we're going to do. And that's how people served in ministry. People who were shut-ins, they had people visiting them regularly. People who were sick had people caring for them. People who taught, taught all the time. Adult Sunday school teachers every single week. And, and we never took a break. Now, church culture, we kind of give people a break because we're like, man, our lives are so busy. We've got to kind of slow things down, take a break. It was never that way. Now we have people who come to church and they say, I only want to do one hour a month. And then I'll come and do my service and go home. Church, we have, we have things set up so purposeful here at Center Point, and you may not understand this. So let me just clearly define it for you. We believe that if you're going to grow, you want to, you want to be built up, you want to grow as a worker, there's three key things everyone should do. One is you should be in worship, which you're doing right now. Hebrews 10, 20, 25 tells us, do not neglect the gathering together of other Christians. God does something in this environment that's beyond what we can possibly understand. And we should never neglect it. That means don't skip it. That means don't just say, well, I'm tired today. I'm sleeping. Oh, the cat's lost yesterday. I'm depressed. I'm not going to come. None of that. I'm out of town. You're out of town. Then go worship somewhere else. And may I suggest moms and dads, if you're traveling, I know, man, my kids have gone through it, and you're in the sports world, and they're going, 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 make it high priority and say to the coach, listen, I'm sorry, but when we're out town, we, we will find a place to worship. It might be Saturday night, it would be Sunday morning, but you model that for your kids, that that's such a high priority, that you know what, we're going to be in church, and we're going to worship with other believers. So you worship. Secondly, you serve. You find a place to serve. And I would challenge you, to blow up the idea of serving once a month. If you're on a once a month schedule right now, we're thankful you're doing once a month, but why not go to your ministry leader and say, "Man, put me on two or three times a month." They could probably plug you in. They could actually use the help. You plug in two or three times a week or two or three times a month, and then when you serve, don't go back here and serve somewhere and then go home. Serve and worship. Do both. Again, when I grew up, man, you were in Bible school class, you were in church, we well, I, I'll give an hour to you, God. We say all that, God, I'll serve a little bit here, a little bit there, I'll show up. You know, the average active attending church member attends 1.7 times a month. That's a little staggering you stop and think about it. 1.7 times a month is the average that the statistics are saying nowadays. Folks, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He gave his life for us so that we could have salvation. Could we not make him in our relationship such a high priority that he comes first before all the other stuff that steals away our serving and our worship and being part of a group? Three things, serve, worship, and a group. You start doing those three things, you'd be amazed how you'll grow as a disciple of Christ, how you'll be built up, and then you move on to step four, which is a multiplying disciple-maker. You'll be so on fire for the Lord. You'll be putting your arms around other people. You'll joyfully embrace the life of Christ. You'll become so powerful that, that you're going to be synergistic in ministry. You'll be helping other people. You'll be encouraging other people in their ministry. And you'll just be pouring in so much. And we have some people like that in this church that are so faithfully serving. They're just like, when the, what do you need? What do you need? I'm plugging in. I'm helping. I'm serving. And, folks, I would encourage you to make sure you're growing. For some industry, may say, man, I'm that once a month person. Then start going twice a month. You're going twice a month. Start going three times a month. Say, man, I'm gonna start serving on a regular basis where I am sacrificing my time, my talents, my treasure. Why? Because he sacrificed on the cross for you and me. That's what a disciple does. See, we see these things illustrated as Jesus discipled Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. Go back to Luke chapter five. It says after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in booth. He said, Follow me. Follow me. Come with me. Levi gets up. Left everything. Left his lucrative tax business. Walked away from it. Levi then becomes Matthew. He's built up as a believer as he travels with Jesus and as he studies underneath Jesus. Matthew learns so much from Jesus that eventually he becomes one of the core 12. I mean, you stop and think about it. A tax collector was known as a cheat and a liar and a stealer and would take people's money. And Jesus says, you, you're not the smartest person out there. You you surely are not the most holiest person out there. But you, you come follow me. You come walk with me. And Jesus takes him and mentors and puts him underneath his wing. And eventually, when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, Matthew, you, you're going to be one of my disciples. But it gets better than that. It gets better than that. He becomes one of the 12. He starts proclaiming the message. And finally, we're that Matthew begins to become a multiplying disciple maker. say, well, how do we know that? Because Matthew is the author of the gospel of Matthew. Here he is. I'm over here. I'm cheating. I'm stealing and taking people's money. Basically, shaking my fist at God. And Jesus says, no, you come and you get to know me. Jesus puts his arm around and You walk with me. I'm going to teach you. Now you become a disciple. And then Matthew, what's he doing? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a letter that's going to be passed on for centuries and centuries and centuries that you and I get to read. And mainly that book of Matthew is about who? Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Has God got a plan or what? It's amazing. And he wants to do that kind of work in our lives. That's what he's calling us to do. Does this great commission extend to Christ's followers today? Absolutely. It wasn't just for the early church. It wasn't just for the 12 apostles. That's how this message of the gospel keeps going for thousands of years. Even a quick glance at the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament make it clear that until Jesus returns, this is what we're supposed to be doing, church. Until he returns, we're supposed to be making disciples should be a core focus of ours should be what we need to be doing this is how we measure our success in life by how well we are stewarding the opportunities of making disciples write down those four steps win the loss build believers equip workers multiply disciple makers write them down on a piece of paper put them on a three by five card put them as a note in your phone save them as a screenshot on your phone so you open it up you look at it and go lord where am i at and how am i doing lord how can i work with you to get a little bit better Put them somewhere where you could see them. And you start praying questions like, Lord, what can I be doing to make better disciples? How can I build up believers? Lord, how can I be a better worker and how can I help equip workers? Lord, am I part of multiplying disciples? You start praying those questions. We start praying those as a church. you would be amazed what's happen in this church in the next three, four, five years as we ask God what's next. Matthew 28, Jesus passes the baton to the 12 disciples to the group of early disciples. Those men and women are now with the Lord. And that baton has been passed down through the centuries, been handed over one to the next, to the next, to the next. You know what? It's in our hands now. It's in your hands. It's in my hands. It's our opportunity. It's our responsibility in this generation to make a gospel impact by discipling people, by making disciples. Church, we need to run that race hard. We can't play games. Church has played games game for too long. We can't take this lightly. We've got to do our part. And, and I pray that when, we, when our time passes on, I pray that these words will be spoken of us. Matthew 25 says, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful of a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. I pray Lord will look down over the body of center point and say, Well done, church. Well done. This is what brings God glory. It's what brings God's pleasure. It's when his children are making disciples. You say, what's my purpose of life? Why do I exist? Why am I here? It's right here. God's given it to us. We know Christ, come to know him. We help other people come to know Christ. We live for that, to make disciples who will make disciples.